0: Uh these, uh these members of ours, here you go Janice, went through membership here some time ago and then uh, we went through, a, went through one more time with Chloe and uh, James and Winter also attended. And so we want to give them a uh, certificate, a membership matters certificate, showing our appreciation for them to joining our church and given their part of who they are and what they are going to do in, in, uh, here at North Park. Chloe, come on up. Membership class is held uh, as, as we announce it. We thank you, Chloe. Here's yours. And let's welcome them. Give them a hand of fellowship. Amen. All right. And let's pray for them. Father, thank you once again for giving us these members that uh, come and want to be a part of North Park Church and just the ministry that they've already been involved in and how they just uh, bring all things together. So I thank you for their love for you, for this church. I thank you for their devotion to you and to serving here at North Park Church. So, Father, continue to bless them and use them as they display their spiritual gifts and being able to uh, be able to build up the body and to grow the body itself, Lord. So, thank you. Protect them, watch over them, and give them the peace that only comes from you, I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. And for those of you that are uh, desiring to be part of uh, membership at our church, we do have a, a uh, it's, it's really a, should be a, a four-hour class, but we do it in three Sundays, two Sundays, because it is a little involved. We do try to get... Some information out, and not only that, but uh, some fellowship in as well. So, all right. So thank you guys for being here for that. For the rest of us, let's open up our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We are in a new book. We went through Philippians. It took us some time to get through. Philippians started us uh, way back when, uh, and uh, we we started going, I think it was in May of this year, We uh, we we started with the book of Philippians. So it'll take us several weeks, if not months. ...to go through the book of Colossians. Colossians is another letter that Paul wrote. He penned it from prison. And you would think that he penned it just for us... ...in our day, in our situation, in our culture, and in our life. Okay? The the series I've entitled, Christ is Sufficient. Christ is Sufficient. This cornerstone, He is sufficient. This Lamb of God, He is sufficient. This is all we need for our life, for our salvation... It's not Christ plus anything else. It's not Christ and good works. It's not Christ and maybe some, some ceremonial laws that we have. And Colossians pretty much touches on a lot of those things. And so from the very beginning, when Paul wrote this letter, he was dealing with, and we really don't know exactly what he was dealing with. But we do know that he was dealing with an issue. Every time that you read a letter from Paul, and, and you can pretty much guess uh, any of the other uh, apostles that wrote the epistles. And uh, if you were just to... to just approach it in such a manner that whatever Paul is writing about more than likely that issue has already arisen when he talks about husbands and wives there's an issue going on with husbands and wives when he's talking about the children there's an issue about children when he's talking about the preeminence of Christ there is an issue about Christ being preeminent and I'm going to explain to you as we go along a lot of these words that we're going to be using because they are important. They're, they're biblical words and some of the, some of the thoughts, the thinkers of, of Christendom and theologians as we look at these aspects of who Christ is and God is, they'll use these words. And so it's important for you to know also you don't necessarily have to throw them around but just understand that when we talk about Christ is sufficient or the sufficiency of Christ is the way it's termed but the sufficiency of christ the christ is sufficient basically what we're saying is that you don't need anything else for salvation it's just jesus christ it's him alone it's in christ alone it's in faith alone in christ alone through grace alone and that's exactly how we understand it and that's how we look at it now it's not coming to church and jesus christ it's not being baptized in jesus christ it's not anything else but christ alone is what we need and paul was dealing with this issue in Colossus he was dealing with these heretics that were bringing in this philosophy this thinking this religious idea this religious thought and uh, most people believe that this this thought that he was bringing in was a thought that was a very carnal very uh it, it was mystical and it was very spiritual in today's culture if you talk to most people most people are very spiritual you know they believe in something other the only thing is that Jesus Christ is one of the many others that they believe in uh, I've talked to some people here just in the past, you know, that are talking about, you know, reincarnation, karma, that are talking about, wasn't well, that in the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible. You know, they're talking about living again. You know, as I talked, you have to be born again, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Oh, yeah, that's like reincarnation. No, it's not reincarnation. Uh, people are talking about, you know, just various things that they include. And so there are a lot of people in our culture that are very spiritual. And you'll hear people speak in a very spiritual, syrupy kind of way. And it is very, uh, it's very keen, it's very uh, almost appealing to the masses because, well, we want to include everybody, right? Yeah. And see, and this is, what it was, this is what Paul was dealing with almost 2,000 years ago, and it's a timeless message. Ours is the age a, of a science. As a matter of fact, it is believed that 95% of all the scientists who ever lived are alive right now today. I mean, science just keeps growing. One person learns something; somebody else learns something else, and it expounds and it grows exponentially. You have various fields of technology, of microbiology, of astrophysics. You have millions of pages of scientific and technological literature and published yearly. There's there's all kinds of information out there, from the stars to the depths of the ocean, and it just seems like everybody is an expert and everyone. Uh, find they find a specialty in their field uh, and the flood of discoveries come in and so ours is a an age of learning of knowing and the more that we know we tend to think that well you know we're getting a little bit more elevated and so therefore our, our elevated status should bring us to a point of understanding more of the not only the universe but of the creation of the universe not necessarily the creator of the universe. And science tends to lead and ask questions about God. And and so we question God. Is there really a God? Or did we really just happen to be uh, in this place? Did we evolve out of nothing? Colossians answers that question. He points on it there's also this is also an age as i said of of bringing all these religions together eucanism is is something that that is a term that you'll learn and we'll use it a little bit more eucanism is is the the gathering of all the religions and putting them together and and everybody getting along with with catholics and protestants and if you know anything and we're going to learn a little bit more about this during the we know which which colossians falls at a very good time, as a matter of fact, because we're going to be talking about the Reformation. Why did the Reformation happen? What what caused the Reformation to happen? The Reformation, Martin Luther came to the church and nailed his theses on the church door on October 31st, not because it was Halloween, but he did so because the very next day was going to be All Saints Day. And he knew that people were going to be at the church. And so therefore, he, he had to lay it out. He says, look, we're doing church wrong. We can't be charging people indulgences. In other words, monies so that we can pray for their people to get out of purgatory. And he says, where do we get the idea of purgatory anyways? It's not even in the Bible. And so Luther is trying to help the church to see. And we'll, we'll find out a little bit later that, that he struggled with this issue. I, you know, I can't go against the church. They've been teaching this for so long, but, but I don't see it in the Bible. This is where we get our term, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And so as we, as we go through this, Paul is laying down some basic scriptural uh, words from Jesus Christ, the, the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's showing us that Christ is sufficient. And we can't be bringing other religions or thoughts. You know, if you look up, if you look up on Google, if you, you Google it, how many religions are out there, you'll get anywhere from 4,500 to 10,000 different types of religions. But you see, the Bible teaches us this. There are only two. There are only two religions. It's either God or it's Satan. He says that the road is wide and broad to destruction, but the gate is narrow unto eternal life. There's goats and there's sheep. There's good fruit, there's bad fruit. There's wolves and there's sheep. There's tares and there's wheat. There's good fish and bad fish. And every time Jesus taught, he taught about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. And everything in this world has its own thought and its own process. And when you leave it alone, You'll come up with all kinds of mystical, scientific theories and thoughts. And you end up with the Church of Scientology. You end up with just all this, all this idea, this understanding, this wisdom. Every time that you see a documentary on TV, if you ever uh, are listening to one of these commentators, uh, you know, and, and one of the things they, they always start off with what if, what if, and then boom, they take off from there. You know, anybody starts with what if, then whatever you hear from that point forward is their speculation, their understanding, what they think. And, and you can add anything to that. You see, and, and so, so what if? What if this, what, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach? And this is what Paul was trying to get across. You cannot bring all this philosophy, political systems, social actions. You can't bring all of that into the church. Now, does the church speak on those things? Yes, but that's not our focus. Our focus is Jesus Christ always Jesus Christ. We don't want to take our eyes off of Jesus and the biblical Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus, the Jesus uh, of, of God himself. And God is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and, uh, and Abraham, Joseph, Isaac, and, and, and he, he comes down to us in, in the form of Jesus Christ and shows himself who he is. The people of Coloss were having a hard time understanding that this is what's going on. Colossians gives us God's perspective on the push for a one world church and what that means is trying to bring that together in the end times. If you know anything about the end times, that there is going to be this one political world, this one world order, one religion, one oneness. And as we bring this all together, you'll hear more and more how this group and and this, and these all different groups are coming together. You'll have Christians and Muslims, and they've developed the terminology for that. They call them uh, Chrislams is what they call them and and so you have all these various different types of thoughts and ideas with no head you see we cannot we can't even agree on who jesus christ is see for the muslims he's just a prophet for the other group of people that, um, that there's another group of people here that, that believe that jesus and satan were brothers and god is the father of both And so you have all these different ideas and thoughts, and Paul is saying, look, we got to look at Colossians chapter 118, that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that is, in everything he might be preeminent, is what James was reading a little while ago. So we have to look at all these various types of things that Paul is talking about. He talks about family. He talks about children. He talks about husbands and wives. He gives us ways of how to uh, interact with one another at work, and our bosses, and as servants, and as employees. Colossians answers these questions. Christ makes sinners holy and blameless in God's sight. He changes lives. One of the things that this group of people believed, and mainly they were being influenced by what's called Gnosticism. Gnostics believed that as they learned more and they got this higher understanding of spiritual things they elevated themselves to the point of understanding who God is and they became more spiritual and therefore the only way to actually ascend or grow higher is to get these special revelations or these special words from God and it was God that was imparting to them his wisdom and as they received it it elevated them even more so and so they became the Gnostics became very intellectualized and you probably talk you you've probably talked to a lot of people that seem to be very intellectualized and and they seem to be very smart and and so and and they are part of this gnostic group that has bled over from way back when 2000 there's nothing new under the sun and they believe that the closer you get to god the more more wise you get the better you'll be in life and you can cure yourself of all kinds of ailments you really can supposedly and the, the Gnostics, they believe that since the spirit was the one thing that was most important, since the spirit was the one thing that we have to work on, then everything else didn't matter. Nothing mattered. As a matter of fact, matter didn't matter. If you can touch it, if you can feel it, it didn't matter. So, so they would live their lives in such a way of debauchery, of drunkenness, of orgies, of all kinds of things. They would run their lives and operate their lives in such a way because the body doesn't matter anyways. It's the spiritual mind. That matters more than anything else, and so what would take place is that you had all these people trying to bring in all these other philosophies and trying to get closer to God, and so Paul answers this in Colossians. He tells us that Christ, that first of all, that we are sinners that we're blamed, uh, that and we're blameless in, in God's sight because He's changed our life. Knowing Christ gives us stability for our lives, causing us to be thankful, because in this world today, many people are are wondering what's going to happen next. How do I approach God? What does God have to offer me? There's questions that people ask in a pragmatic sense. You know, what can I do? What can I get? How can God help me? It's always about me, yeah. me, me. Yeah. You know, help me, Lord. Sir, you know, give me insight, Lord. Yeah. When the focus needs to be on Jesus Christ. One of the thoughts in our world today is uh, what's called humanism. Humanism uh, teaches that man is basically good. But we make bad decisions, or we do bad things. We're basically good in nature, but, you know, there's some things that just come out that are bad. Well, the Bible teaches just the opposite. The Bible says that no one is righteous, no, not when there is no one who is good. We're all sinners before the Lord, and we need a Savior. We need a Savior to to bring us out of this ugliness and so we need, to get, we need to be thankful to Christ for what He's did for us and how He's given us stability in life. Christ fulfills all our needs. In Colossians chapter 2, we'll see in verse 10, And you have been filled in Him, in other words, made complete, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Christ, you are complete. You are, you are everything that you need to be. Nothing more, nothing less. Christ has given you all that you need. You have been made complete. And when you think about this, and you move this forward you, in your mind and your logic and your understanding of what the Bible teaches, that we have a place in heaven that's far outweighs the sun. We have a mansion, we have riches and an inheritance. We, we are gonna be with God who, who owns everything. Not only did He create everything, but He owns everything. So the things that we have here on this earth are meaningless, meaningless. Yeah. Nobody takes their stuff with them. There are, there are no stuff in church. It's only God. Knowing Christ so radically transforms our old life into, uh, from a dead life to a new life. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, 3, 4, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. We're going to go over every one of these issues, every one of these things. Because right now, as we come to a close, as we start looking at the things that are happening around our world, we start and Paul talks about the end times as well. He will we'll dive into that. He shares in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, When Christ, who is your, your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. When Jesus Christ is going to come, there is a focus on the Antichrist right now. There is a focus on the demonic influence. There is a focus on Antichrist, and what we should be focusing on is the return of Christ. Amen? And that's what Paul is going to show, with, show us, as it was something that they did back then. They were looking at the Antichrist, and all the things that were going on, and how do I combat all these things? This present age will not last or will not end in a nuclear or an environmental disaster. This age, this world is going to end the way God had intended it for it to end. The skies are going to be rolled back like a scroll. Can you imagine that in your mind's eye? Picture that. How is the sky going to be rolled back? And all of a sudden, everything is going to be exposed. How is that going to look? But that's exactly what the Bible says. And we look at these things as, they, as the Bible teaches us. And we're looking at these things. And so in today's culture, we're looking at all kinds of other things. We're looking at globalism. We're looking at economicalism. Uh, we're looking at uh, the ecology. We're looking at all these various things that seem to want to move the planet forward. But it's Jesus Christ and Him alone. When the end comes, I've shared this with you before. Before the end comes. People come up to me and they ask me, especially after this war that just started in, in not Russia, Russia invaded, um, well, you know, the place I'm talking about. When that happened, people come to me and say, so does this mean that these are the wars and rumors of wars that the Bible talks about? Whenever there's a tsunami or an earthquake, does this mean that it's now going to be earthquakes in various places? When COVID hit, I mean, the question was, does, does this mean that it's now these the diseases and pestilence, does this mean that this is going to happen? Does this mean that now the, now the end is about to happen because of these things that are happening throughout the world and even in our life? And we look at things through our lenses, through our eyes, through yeah. what happens to me and, yeah. and in my understanding. Yeah. But you know, if you turn your books, your Bibles, over to Matthew chapter 24, very briefly. If you turn over to Matthew 24, when, we st- when, when Jesus is asked this question, is this now, tell us, tell us when all these things are going to take place. Tell us when you're going to come back again. And, and Jesus says to them, starting in verse, well, actually, it's, it's in verse 3 that he says, that as he sat on the mountain, on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When, when is the day that the things all come to fruition? When does the end happen? The very first thing Jesus said, as he said this, see that no one leads you astray. See that you're not being led astray by every thought, philosophy, idea, this this, this gathering of churches and, and religions. See that nobody leads you astray into something different than what the Word of God says. See that no one leads you astray. As a matter of fact, he's pretty adamant about this because he says it again in, in verse 11. If you read down there in verse 11, he goes on to say, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And at the end time, what starts to happen before all the earthquakes and all the and during the earthquakes and all the famines and all these things, there are going to be people that are going to supposedly do some sort of miraculous signs. And Jesus says, make sure that these false prophets, these false apostles that are rising up and are talking because they feel or they think or they believe. But what does the word of God say? What does the Word of God say? And we have many people out there just talking out the side of their mouth and saying, God said to me this, and He's revealed this to me. And people have come up to me and says, you know, God told me that I need to tell you X, Y, and Z. And I tell them, well, really? Well, I met with Jesus this morning. He didn't say anything to me about that. You know, And, and people just, because they want to be some sort of spiritual person, I guess, or the attention on them. But what does the Bible say? Well, I believe. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you think. Please, no disrespect. But if you're going to be proclaiming something from God, understand that we need to look at it and see what the scriptures say. One last last thing. Jesus says in verse 24, if you look at that with me. He goes to verse 24 and he says this. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. This is how convincing these antichrists, false prophets, this deception, this is how convincing it's going to be that they could lead you astray, if it was possible. If you are part of the elect, if you are part of who Jesus Christ has died for, if you are the ones that Jesus Christ came out to save, then this, all these things, and you will doubt, and you'll start thinking, you know, but that sounds so good, and it looks so real, and it's pleasing to the flesh. Remember. We talked about this before. Eve saw the fruit. It looked so good. And it was pleasing to the flesh. And you know what? I want some of that knowledge. I want to know what God knows. I want to know what's good and what's wrong. And so Eve took. And those three temptations have been coming to us from the very beginning. From Satan. And so as we look at the world and as we look at other religions, Paul was addressing the very same thing to this little podunk little city. There were three cities in the area, and we'll, we'll, we'll see them. If you go back to Colossians, you'll see them in uh, chapter 4. And uh, you'll go to uh, verse 13, I believe. Yeah, verse 13. Paul says, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. And in those two cities, actually it was the Laodiceum, Hierapolis, and Colossus, there were three cities that were kind of triangled around in this, this region. It was a very rich region. As a matter of fact, by the time of Jesus Christ, Colossus had already depleted all its gold and minerals and silver. And so it became a very small city. Laodicea, other, uh, otherwise, you, you probably remember Laodicea from Revelation chapter 3. It was one of the churches that, um, that, that Jesus Christ had addressed. It's the seventh church that he addressed in Revelation chapter 3. And he said in verse 14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful, true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So you because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, I need nothing, realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked." See, Laodicea was a very rich community. And the church had gotten to the point where we don't need anything. See, our people are giving. They're making all kinds of money. And our church is growing. And our church, you know, we don't need anything else. And Jesus says, you know what? You guys are pitiful. You're poor. You're blind. And one of the things that Laodicea would do, as far as commerce was concerned, is they came up with this ointment that you can put on your eyes. And it would help blind people. Or it help soothe your eyes. Or it would help with pink eye or other eye infections. And it was a very good ointment. It was very popular and therefore it was very expensive people would go there and you know all these things that the, the Paul is addressing all these these cities and, and and but these three cities out of those three he picks the smallest one to write this letter as a matter of fact we do know we'll find out here later we do know that he did write a letter to Laodicea because he tells the people in Colossus after you read this letter send it to Laodicea and read the letter that I sent them as well so so there's this information that we're getting from both sides. And, and we don't exactly know, but by the, by the gathering the information inside this letter, we start to realize and piece together what Paul was dealing with. And basically, beloved, he was dealing with the Church of the America. He was dealing with our church that's gone astray, yeah. thinking that we're okay, that we're good, we don't need anything. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're powerful, we're, we got tithers, we have everything we need. Beloved, we need to realize, as Jesus said, to the church on the uh, we don't even realize sometimes how pitiful, how poor we are. I've been accused of always talking very negative about our lives. Well, beloved, we are negative. We're sinners. Well, I'm not a sinner. Yes, you are. I was saved by grace. Yes, I know that because you're a sinner. And we need to understand that and recognize that, that we are sinners. And, and the only reason that we're able to stand before God, the only reason we're able to stand is because of what Jesus Christ did. And what Jesus Christ did is sufficient. Now that's just a brief introduction of the book of Colossians. And I just want to share with you just a little bit more what Paul talks about as we go into our, our study this morning. Because Paul deals with certain things that seem to be, you know, that, seem to, that hit right on the head. Number one, in your outlines, Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God, and because He is the image of God, His supremacy stands out, and it's clear that the attacks that were going up against the church had to do with this, the supremacy of Christ, and there is no other letter that really focuses on Jesus Christ's supremacy, his, uh, you know, how complete and final it was that Jesus, what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and Paul really just focuses on this. This is why we call this letter, and I'm calling it, uh, this, this series, Christ is sufficient you see he's the image of god now we are images of god we are image bearers but we are imperfect images we're sinners jesus christ was a perfect image of god because he is god the word image icon icon is the word that we use for as 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 we do for some of the icons that we have iconic it's it's but in greek it meant that he is exactly the duplicate of this one thing he is the exact duplicate of god And therefore, when they were writing out in the 300 plus years from the time of Jesus Christ to the time that they came to this Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, it was over 320 years. In 320 years, they are fighting and arguing and writing this out and discussing it and reading and going back, going forward, reading all these things. They didn't all of a sudden just come up with, well, I think we'll just call it the Trinity. But some people say, some people think that it's just one man that says, we'll call it the Trinity, put it in the Bible, that's good. Well, it's not even in the Bible. And people argue that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. So how can you believe that the word Trinity really exists or that God is a triune God? How do you know that? My first response is, well, you know, the word Bible is not in the Bible either. So how do you believe the Bible if the word Bible is not in the Bible? The Trinity was hammered out throughout the 300 years that it was brought to the forefront And through it all, you got to understand this, and we're going to go through some of these heresies as we go through the book of Colossus. Through it all, the people were trying to protect the oneness of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was the Shema. And they believed this with all their heart. Then they believed that the Spirit of God was the one that hovered over the earth. And they believed that God's Spirit would indwell certain people at a certain time for a certain task. for a certain length of time. And the Spirit of God would fill the person and give them the empowerment that they needed. They believed that. But now Jesus Christ comes in and He says He's God. Okay, now wait a minute. (laughs) Now now you're taking this a little bit too far. And so you got to understand the times at that that day. You know, here's here's a religion that's been around for almost 5,000 years. And now all of a sudden Jesus Christ comes in and He fulfills the law and He says, I am God. And so you got to see the pushback on that. However, you also have to see the evidence, the signs, and everything that he did proclaimed that he was God. And he said, this is the last sign I'm going to show you guys. The last sign I'm going to show you is that when this temple is torn down in three days, I will rise it up. And he was talking about his body. He was crucified, buried, and resurrected. Now, we'll have to You'll have to understand how they kept track of the days. You know they didn't have twenty-four hour days the way we do. You know, however, and that's another time. Uh, it's another for another study. However, what he said came true, and that was the evidence of his significance, his sufficiency, his preeminence. He existed way before any other time. So he is the image of God. As a matter of fact, in Colossians 1.15, we will read, and James read this for us. Thank you, James. We will read, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In verse 19, it says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we'll dive into that. And you're going to, your theology, your doctrine is going to grow. And and you have to have a good doctrine. You have to have a good doctrine because with good doctrine, with right doctrine, you're going to get right living. See, but the bad doctrine always leaves you to wrong living. You're only going to operate according to what you know. And we've had many people come through here. And one of the things that I keep hearing is, you know, I really appreciate the way you go into the Bible and explain to us what's in there. And people that have been here before and have left to other places and gone to other churches, they inevitably come back and they say, you know what, okay, now I see what you mean. <laughs> now, okay, now it's as clear as day and night. You know? Now I see what you've been talking about. Because anything goes sometimes in certain places. Now there are a lot of Bible teaching churches in the area. Please don't get me wrong. You know, and, and just because it's huge and big and flashy and showy does not mean it is not of God. But the purpose of God's word and the preeminency of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ to show us that this is all we need. Now, you know, and I thank God for that because, you know what? We're not a big flashy church. <laughs> we don't have smoke screens and, you know, lights and stuff. I, I guess we can get those, you know, but and we'll go over that worship here in just a little bit. But, but in, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, all I can tell you is what the Bible says. Amen. And that's the truth. I Because the truth never changes. That's it. The truth changes me. That's it. Number two, Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the creator of all things. As we sang that song, the King of glory, the creator of all things. This is the King of glory. And we we have been taught, and rightly so, that God created the heavens and the earth. We're going to see that what God did is, is in, in verse 16 of Colossians chapter 1, God says, for by Him, talking about Jesus Christ, all things were created. And because all things are created by Jesus Christ, all things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him, and guess what? They were created for Him. Everything was created not only through Him, but for Him. You were created through Him, and you were also created for Him. And you were created for Him. You see, not only did Jesus Christ die on the cross for you, but He also created you. You're twice His. He made you, and then He died for you. He redeemed you. He purchased you through His blood. And He deserves our highest praise and our highest worship. Yes. Yes. Colossians 1.17 says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. There was uh, There's this preacher named Louis Giglio, Giglio that gave this sermon this one time of this this uh, enzyme that we have in our bodies that holds everything together, all the molecules and all the, everything that, that needs to be held together, not only in our body, but all throughout the universe. And it's, he called it, and I believe they called it laminin. And laminin is, uh, you know, when you put it under a microscope and you look at it, it's interesting that it looks like a cross. It looks like a cross. And it's just so amazing how he brings this out. He says, you know, there it is. Jesus Christ holds everything together. He has to. Because they were created by him. They were created for him and he holds everything together until the day of his return. Now, with that picture in mind, remember this. When Jesus Christ returns, he's going to hold back and he's not going to be holding all things together. This is why the sky is going to be rolled back like a scroll. This is why the stars are going to fall out of the sky. This is why it's going to be so earthquakes, because he is not holding things together. He comes to show his power. At that point in time, beloved, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Number three, Jesus was fully man. In Colossians one twenty-two, he says, And he, he, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him the gnostics since they believe that intellect wisdom knowledge and gnostics comes and that's where we get our word knowledge uh, gnosis and because you you have this gnosis or this knowledge in your mind and the body is evil and it's wicked and doesn't matter what you do with it it doesn't matter because that's what it is all we want is our spirit and our flesh they strongly argued that jesus christ couldn't have been human if jesus christ truly was from god and is god he could not be human and as a matter of fact it has all these other ramifications, Gnosticism does. If God cre- if God is, is holy and pure, then he could not have created this planet which is wicked and broken and sinful. So therefore, how did that happen? And they had this idea and this thought on how things were, were being created or sent by God. And, and, and one after another after another till finally one of those things that he sent, which was Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and he was too pure and holy, so something else had to happen before anything could be created. And so they had this idea and they would just think these things through and philosophize and argue with one another. And they'd come out of thinking, oh yeah. <laughs> we're about it man we're almost there we're almost there let's keep thinking and because everything didn't matter Jesus Christ could not have come in the flesh according to them and you'll hear a lot of this you'll hear some of this stuff from some of the teachings these these sects that are out there that say no Jesus was just a good man you know he was a good teacher he was a very good teacher you know but he was just a man just a regular man he wasn't God or, you know, he was maybe God, but he adopted Jesus Christ. Or, he, you know, God came in a form of, 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 you know, son and then became God. And there are all these heresies that we're going to go over. We'll just touch on them, and I'm not going to get too into them. But you need to know, because those heresies that started way back then, you'll see them unfold before your eyes in some of these churches and religions that you probably already heard of. And we'll identify them as we go along. See, the Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. You see, this is John talking to the Jews, the Hebrews, and telling them, look, in the beginning, and they the, the moment he wrote that, the first few words in John chapter 1, in the first verse, first chapter, In the beginning, it catapults them to Genesis. In the beginning, so they are able to recognize, okay, yeah, this is a letter written to us. In the beginning was the Word. We know that God spoke the Word into existence. And the Word was with God. We understand that the Word was with God as used the Holy Spirit. And the Word was God. We understand that, John, that, that God's Word is the one thing that holds everything together. Oh, wait a minute. And the Word became flesh? Okay, now now we have to talk. The word became, and dwelt among us? And you're saying it's that guy that we crucified? That's who it is? I don't know about that, John. And so John is making the point of showing Jesus Christ as God. He calls all the miracles of Jesus, John does in the Gospel of John, he calls them signs. These are the signs. The first sign that Jesus did was at the, at the wedding in Cana where he turned water into wine. And I don't know about you, but I know a little bit about wine. I've got family that has wineries and stuff. And, uh, you know, that was, I mean, that's what they do. And they've showed me the process. The process takes years to get good, fine wine. And what Jesus did is he got a a glass of water, a pitcher of water, and pulled it out of a jug and he poured it. And in that time that he poured it, that wine turned into such good wine that the bridegroom says, hey, what are you doing here? This This is amazing. See, most people pull out the good wine ahead of time, and after everybody gets drunk, then they pull out the cheap wine. But you saved the best for last. That sign that Jesus Christ did was to show. You see, if he can create water into wine in a matter of seconds, just in a matter of pouring it, what do you think Jesus can do in a whole day? Give him 24 hours. See what he can do. And that was his first sign. And John was pointing to Jesus Christ. He was fully man. Paul is talking about the fullness of, of Jesus Christ, not only being all God, but he's all man. And yes, it is something that it kind of brings us to, a, how, how, do you, how do you make that? Was he a God-man? Was he half this and half? No, he was fully God and he was fully man. But how do you put that together? We just accept it by faith. Not because I just thought about it, but again, 300 years of searching the scriptures and praying, this is, this, is, this is all we can come up with. It has to be. That's how the Trinity works. I remember one day some sister came forward. I was talking about the Trinity. and we shared, you know, I wasn't really talking as much about the Trinity. It wasn't about the Trinity, but I shared this, this insight. And after the service was done, she came up to me and she says, you know what, all these years I've struggled to understand the Trinity. I think I finally got it. I go, really? Because if you really got it, then, you know, because I, I still don't get it. I still can't grasp it all, how it all works. But if you got it, praise God. No, I mean, I understand how it works. I'm not understanding how it actually works out, but I understand what happened. You know, I never understood that it was fully God, fully uh, man, and, and, and the Spirit. And He became flesh. Number, th- number four, backyard lines. Jesus, oh, I'm sorry. Jesus is above all demonic rule. Some people are afraid of the dark Come on. some people are afraid of the things that go bump in the night Come on. we have a fear of demonics of demons Come on. there are some places that you'll go to in the church and before they even start praying or before they even start doing anything else they play the music up really loud and they're the very first word that comes out of the the speaker at any con- these congregations is the word satan as loud as they can satan get out of here Satan and they're like why are they praying to Satan? <laughs> why are they focusing on Satan? What's the what's the allure of focusing on Satan in church? In your life? He has no power over you. Jesus and Satan are not brothers. They're not fighting against each other to see who wins and God's up there saying, "Okay, whoever wins, you get the prize." They're not that's not what they're doing. Jesus conquered all dominion and power. In, in Colossians one sixteen again, it, it reads like this: For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's Paul's way of saying everything behind the scenes, Yeah. all the demonic influences, all the demons, all the everything else. Satan himself, Satan does not have the attributes of God. Satan cannot be at all places at all time. Satan cannot understand or know your mind. He cannot get into your mind. Satan cannot do whatever he wants. He's limited according to what God has said that he can do. And yet people are so afraid of the devil and Satan and Hollywood's picture. And they're afraid of all these things that seem to be going on in the world because of this demon force that's out there. We're going to talk about how Jesus supersedes is above all because he created them. As a matter of fact, in verse fifteen of chapter two in Colossians, we'll read that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, uh, over them in him. He put them to shame on the cross. Yeah. You think you got me? Yeah, right. Yeah. And that's one thing that I want you to make sure that you make sure that you receive from these teachings that you receive that Satan has no power over you. The only power Satan has over you is the power that you give him. He cannot make you do anything. He cannot get into your mind. He cannot force you to do anything. You yourself are the one that falls prey. So true. Now, you may not get possessed in a sense, so but you know, what are the works of the flesh? Anger, jealousy, fits of rage, you know, those types of things. If you fly off the handle, oh, you know what, that's just me. You know, no, that was Satan enticing you to do that. Those demonic forces. You know, and, and you can get rid of your anger. You can get rid of all these things that are bothering you, are hurting you. Number five, Jesus fulfilled the law. This is very interesting. We're going to read this. We're going to understand this. Therefore, Paul says in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In the church, there were these people that saying, well, you have to be circumcised. You have to be following Moses' traditions. You'll have to be doing the festivals and and all the Sabbaths. You can't you can't work on the Sabbath. Church is, has to be done on the Sabbath, not on Sunday. And, and there was these regulations and rules and this asceticism of strict rules that they had to follow. And in some, and in some churches you'll have that you know you can't wear that clothes women can't wear that that dress or uh, the, the, a certain type of clothing or the way you do your hair or how you come to church or those types of things seem to overshadow what Jesus Christ has done now understand that we hold a high view of God here and because we hold a high view of God we want to present to him our best and what we can that doesn't mean that you don't ha- you have to wear a suit and tie which i kind of show that myself i don't wear a tie um but but i can never find a tie big enough or yeah my shirts are just I don't know what it is. If I got a shirt big enough to close this, you know, I'd be like way out here like this, you know. I have to get them custom made. Uh, well, I want to be Christ-like more than cool. But thank you, brother. And and what Paul is saying, you know, and he says to them, everybody's judging you guys according to what you do, what you eat, what you wear, what you know. And, and so because they were Gnostics, you know, he says, well, you know, we don't have to hold. Jesus Christ took care of the law. The law is done with. And you'll hear this. I'm forgiven. You know, once saved, always saved. So it doesn't matter what I do. Because Jesus Christ forgave all my sin. He fulfilled the law. I don't have to follow the law anymore. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. But the moral law, you're obligated to keep. Amen. You should not murder. Amen. That's basically saying, well, you know, G- Jesus took care of the law, there, and I can kill whoever I want. I got a few people on my list. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody said somebody said that their mom used to, the grandma used to say, you know, the reason I give people a hug is to see how, how big of a hole I have to dig. <laughs> you don't have the freedom to do whatever you want. Come on. You don't have the free. Jesus Christ died, paid for your sins, and therefore all your sins are forgiven from back in 2,000 years to until he, until he returns. And people have told me, so that means I can do whatever I want? Basically, you can, but why would you? You've got to hold up to the moral law. Do not commit adultery, do not lie, do not do not uh, covet your neighbor's goods. There are moral laws that we have to keep. Paul goes on to say in chapter 3 of verses 5 and 8, put to death therefore that what is earthly in your in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of, the, of these the wrath of God is coming. This is why God's wrath is coming upon those that have not become his. In these, you two are once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Stop saying, I am a work in progress. Just get rid of it. Yes, you're a work in progress. That's not an excuse to fly off the handle and say what you want or think what you want. That's not an excuse. We are to conduct ourselves in a manner. And yes, I understand. It is, it is difficult. I still struggle with a lot of things. However, Paul says, put them away. You're obligated to keep the whole law, uh, the moral law, excuse me. And the last thing I want to share with you is Jesus deserves my highest worship. Okay. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not yeah. on things that are on earth. Seek the things that are lifted up high. Seek Jesus Christ. Focus on Him. We have, in in theological terms, in some of the thinkers of uh, of our day, there's there's two two types of worship, or principles of worship. There's a regulative principle of worship, and then there's the normative principle of worship. And just very briefly, regulative means that whatever the Bible says that we should do is what we're going to do. And if it's not in there, we're not going to do it. You know, I, I, I kind of hope that we would be more, we are kind of regulative, in other words, but we do things things that the Bible doesn't specifically state. Because in a normative principle of worship, a normative says if the Bible doesn't say, you sh- if the Bible says you shouldn't do it, then we're not going to do it. But if it doesn't say anything about it, we're going to do it. Like, for instance, TV, you know, the Bible is not, doesn't have anything in, in there about TVs or, you know, loud music or microphones or all these other things. And so there's a, there's a balance if you go one way or the other. But for the most part, if you wanted to understand how our, the principle of our worship is, we're more regulative. You know, We're not concerned so much about how you feel about the music. Okay. We're more concerned about what the music is teaching you, okay. uh, what we agree on together. Okay. And so we pick songs that are doctrinally sound. I'm not going to sing songs. It doesn't matter how good they sound, just because they sound good. And there's a lot of songs out there that I really like but they're not part of my worship experience, you know? And so whatever the Bible teaches is what we're going to share with you through music and through worship. And so we're not a normative type of church where everything goes as long as, the, if the Bible says you can't do that, like for instance, there's places that, that'll that'll jump and hop and flags and all kinds of things. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's just, I, it just goes, it gets carried away. And then there's other churches that say, you know what, you can't do that, can't do that. And I don't want to stand up here saying you can't, you can't, you can't. Because some people, you know, they don't have a Bible and they use their phones. And, and if we take it that far, then we shouldn't even have Bibles here. Because, like I said, Bibles aren't even in the Bible. You know, they just showed up and they listened and uh, they didn't even take notes. And Paul would preach and preach and preach like that one kid named Eutychus. He fell asleep on the third floor. He fell down and died. So don't fall down and go to sleep, okay? And he died, but Paul prayed over him and brought him back to life. And guess what happened? Paul kept preaching. <laughs> And people kept listening. Okay, I'll listen. Jesus deserves my highest worship. Therefore, the Hebrews say, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And I think there's the key. We ought to have reverence when we worship God. We can't be flippant about our worship to God. We have a high view of God. We're not going to call him Daddy, Pops, the man upstairs. We're not, him, we're not going to call him the guy in the sky, the big guy in the sky. He is God and deserves to be recognized as God and creator of all things. And because he is God, Jesus Christ is his son who also is God. And because we recognize God in, in the highest form, we recognize Jesus Christ in the highest form. And we recognize that the Holy Spirit is, has been empowered. He's given us the, the ability to see His Word and gives us direction through His Word. It doesn't send us off into different tangents, into doing whatever it is that we feel like we should do. He always sends us to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit should always point you to the cross. Always. Because it's not the Holy Spirit that we worship. The Holy Spirit people, and we'll talk about this again some more. You know, there's people that have made a denomination out of the worship of the Holy Spirit and takes away everything from the cross. There's lip service given to Jesus, but it's what can the Holy Spirit do for me? Give me, I want to be filled, I want to be... And you just go on and on and on, negating the cross. But the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, He will bring glory to me, is what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. Not to Himself but the Jesus Christ. Jesus deserved my, my highest worship. He deserves it because He's the one who died on the cross. As we go through the book of Colossians, we're going to look at every one of these aspects. It's a very short book, but it's packed with all kinds of biblical discernment and doctrine that we need for our life today. And I pray that you can stick it out with us from this point forward and come to see what Paul has given us. Let me ask you to stand. There needs to be an understanding, first and foremost. Many of you, and and I pray that all of you, have already committed your life to Christ in a sense where you know that He is the supreme uh, being in your life, and that you've given your life to Him, and you want to grow and desire to know more about who He is. And so therefore, with that desire that you have, that God has given you to know Him, He's going to expound the Scriptures to you. And he will illumine. He won't reveal anything to you because revelation's already been taken care of right here. This is revelation. Revelation has already been taken care of, so there is no new revelation. God is not going to reveal anything to you. It's already here. What he's going to do, he's going to illuminate to you. He's going to make it. He's going to make you see it. You'll see the light in a sense, but you cannot do that until the Spirit of God rests and resides inside of you. Amen. And the only way that that happens is when you repent. You repent of your sin. Repent of this ugliness that we called life. And recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and that you need saving. Not just coming to church. Not just reading the word. Not just giving. It is Jesus Christ that we commit our life to because He died for us. The moment that you understand that, repentance comes into your life. And repentance requires for you to change. You cannot stay the same. It requires for you to change. And I pray that this morning, before anything else, that you repent and give Christ full access to your heart as he changes your heart from the inside out. Father in heaven, thank you again for what you do in our life and how you've given us this beautiful letter that Paul penned to the people that he loved in Colossus. The struggles that he was going through, the word that he heard, and and how he was concerned about this heresy that was creeping into the church and I thank you, Father, that it's been preserved for this point and this time for us as well. And I pray that you can help us as we focus more and more on his word and more and more on you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for us and giving us eternal life only through you. Father, I just pray that you dismiss us now and lead us in all things as we go to the Lord's table and share with one another, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.